All righty. Well, good morning, everyone. It's a blessing to be with you this morning. Hope you all had a good Thanksgiving. Uh, I've been looking forward to talking with you this morning about Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. As Bill and Maria shared, this is the first week of Advent. And our theme this year is come and behold him. Come and behold Jesus. Set your eyes upon him. Look upon him. See him for all that he truly is. Today, our message is titled, Come and Behold the King. Come and Behold the King. In the song, O Come All Ye Faithful, you remember how the lyrics go? Come and behold him, born the what? The king of what? Of angels. Born the king of angels. Jesus. Little baby Jesus, born the king of angels. And then what does it say? Oh, come let us what? Adore him. So this morning, that's what I want our focus to be. I want to behold the glory of the holiness, the wonder of Jesus, so that our hearts would be drawn to adore him. And as Bill and Maria said, as as the Magi came from the east, these, these wise and important men came because they heard that the Messiah was born. And they came to worship him. So I want to see Jesus this morning. I want you to see Jesus this morning for all that he is. Because it's so important that we have an accurate understanding of him. Jesus, in John chapter 4, verse 23, says that the Father desires worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. We need to know Jesus truly so we can worship him truly. If you don't know Jesus for who he fully is, your heart is not going to be drawn towards worship and adoration as it's meant to be. If you have a small view of Jesus, you're going to have a big view of yourself. You're going to have a big view of other people. A lack of worship in our hearts because of a diminished or unbalanced view of God is going to lead to disarray in so many areas of our lives. Our priorities are going to be off. Our worship is going to be off. We're not going to be compelled to work for him because we don't recognize that he is the Lord of the universe, the ruler of the world. Our walk with him is going to be diminished and hindered because we don't understand who he truly is and that though he is transcendent and other and utterly holy and dwells in unapproachable light, we can draw near to him because of the blood that he shed on the cross. But these things must be held in balance. If we have a Jesus who is only love, who is only about forgiveness, and we forget about his holiness and the wrath that we are deserving of, we are going to have an unbalanced Jesus that is not representative of what the Bible truly declares about him. So today, I want to behold the king. 
the Lord who was born, the king of angels, because this is who he has been throughout all of eternity. Jesus, eternal God, eternal son of God, has been worshipped far before he was born into this world to save. So let us adore him and behold him today. Let's pray and we'll get into Isaiah 6. Lord, we want to see you today. Break into the reality of each of our lives. Let us see you for who you truly are. All of the misunderstandings, all of the imbalances in our heart. Lord, eradicate them all and let us get a clear vision and see you for who you truly are so that our hearts would be compelled to worship you, to love and adore you and give ourselves fully to you. Lord, we need this. So meet us today, O God, who makes himself known. In your precious and holy name, amen. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Isaiah doesn't just have some dream of God. You know, like in Daniel, where he has a, a dream of, of this massive statue of King Nebuchadnezzar, which, which is gold, and then it's, it's bronze, and it's, it's clay and metal, and, and it has to be interpreted because it means specific things about the future. Isaiah gets a glimpse into the corridors of heaven sees reality as it truly is. God opens his eyes to who he truly is and what is going on in heaven that he cannot see. I want you to hear this passage in light of that. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne that is high and lifted up. In the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each of them had six wings. With, with two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And they called out to one another and said, Holy, holy, Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Now listen to how Isaiah responds. And I said, woe is me. For I am lost, I am doomed, I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, 
the Lord of hosts. And one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sins are atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, Lord, send me. We're going to focus a lot of our time this morning on the first four verses. We behold much of the Lord throughout all of these eight verses, but I want to trace the flow of thought that we're going to see throughout this whole passage this morning. The first thing we're going to, we're going to pray. Bob started this service in prayer, and, and all of our points are going to be prayer. Because we can't do this without the Lord. The first thing is, let me see you clearly. Let me see you clearly. I can't muster up the strength to see God without him revealing himself to me. So let me see you clearly. What's the result of this? I'm going to see myself clearly and be able to understand, to grasp my need for him, for his salvation. And once I can understand and grasp my need for his salvation, I can understand how glorious his grace is. So let me know your grace. And finally, as a result of knowing how desperately I need the Lord and his salvation, how far, how far I fall short, I'm going to understand how far everyone else falls short. Because we're all the same. In light of the exalted king and his perfect holiness, we are all doomed. Because he is a just and righteous judge who always does what is fair. So if we understand him and ourselves and others' need in the gravity of his glorious grace, we're going to be compelled to go out into this world with passion to reach the lost as we have been reached. But this begins with the heart of worship. If we see him clearly, we're going to be worshipers of him. Are you a worshiper of the Lord? Does your worship of the Lord consist of four songs a week, all sung on Sunday? Or do you have a heart that worships him because he is Lord, not just during Sunday service, but the king of your heart throughout the whole week, and so you long to worship him? Our first point is, let me see you clearly. Now, maybe you're saying, Stephen, why are we in Isaiah? Why are we looking at this passage for Advent? Look with me at John 12. John chapter 12. This is the end of Jesus' public ministry. The triumphal entry has just happened It's the week of the passion. 
In but a few days, the people have, who have sung his praises, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, are going to shout for him to be crucified. They have utterly rejected the king who has made himself known to them. And John reflects on why this is so. He says this in John 12, starting in verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah 53, 1, the suffering servant passage Therefore, they could not believe, for Isaiah again said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. This is as a result of idolatry. You become like the idols you worship, and this is the consequence. Your eyes, your ears, your heart loses its ability to do the things it was meant to do. You become senseless like the idols you worship. Lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. This is Isaiah 6, verses 9 through 11. But listen to what John says. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. Who's him? Jesus. So John says, Isaiah, in 740 B.C., when Uzziah dies, he is, his eyes are open to the reality of the throne room in heaven, and he sees the glory of the Son of God. The one we read of in this passage in Isaiah is the Son of God. Eternal God, who was born into this world and given the name Jesus. This is who we worship as king. So this morning, I want to just behold the wonders of what we see of King Jesus in this passage. I wish we could spend five hours on this. We could. And you know I could. <laughs> but we won't. Um, but what you're going to have to do is, is you see the outline that's in front of you? Ignore it. <laughs> We're going to spend most of our time in the first four verses. Uh, the Lord's shifted some of the focus that I wanted to bring out of this text as the week uh, grew, grew further and, and, and closer to, to this morning. And so what I don't want you to think is, you know, we're at verse 3 and you're like, there's 15 minutes left. Is he ever going to get to this? We're going to focus primarily on the first four verses so that when we get to points 2, 3, and 4 in verses 5 through 8, we are in the same position as Isaiah where we have beheld the king and we're ready to respond. Isaiah 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. We begin in these verses to see God's identity. 
the identity of Jesus. The first thing we see is that he is sovereign. He is the sovereign one. He is Adonai, Lord. Lord of heaven, Lord of earth. Because he is the creator of heaven and earth. Do you know that? Do you trust that? Do you live in light of the fact that he is the ruler of heaven and earth? He is the sovereign one. Isaiah clarifies who this sovereign one is in verse 3 when he says this is the Lord, Yahweh of hosts. So we see that he is the living one. King Uzziah reigned for 52 years, the longest reign of any king in Israel, longer than David, longer than Solomon, longer than Saul, longer than all of them. For many years, he was a wonderful king, a good king. But at the end of his reign, he did not finish well. He was consumed by pride which led to his disobedience, and he was punished by God with leprosy. The people loved him. He was a good king. And the people mourned when he died. Think of, of the UK with the passing of the queen. Or you can imagine in an American context how challenging it is how heartbreaking it is when a ruler or a leader passes away. You think of JFK. You think of Abraham Lincoln. You think of Martin Luther King. The people mourn. But the thing is, the reign of every human ruler and leader will end. Every single one. But God is the living one. And his reign never ends. He is constant. He is unchanging. All life comes from him, the living one. He has aseity. He has life in himself, which means he is an independent being. He is dependent upon nobody. But do you know what that means? Everything, everyone is dependent upon him. If he ceased to exist, everything would cease to exist because we are all dependent upon him. He is the only necessary being in this world. King Uzziah played a purpose for 52 years, but his life was not necessary. God could have done it through anyone. His effectiveness was only because he was empowered, anointed with the Spirit. The Lord may work through me. He may work through me this very morning, but I am not necessary. God is the only necessary being. God is a revealer. He makes himself known. Isaiah saw him, which is so important because God is spirit. He is invisible. So without making himself known, we could not 
know him. God made himself known to Isaiah in this vision by, by bringing his mind and his eyes into heaven to see what reality was. But he has done something far greater than this vision with Isaiah because he took on flesh and dwelt among us. And John 1.14 says that we, we saw, we beheld his glory. Jesus took on flesh so that we could see and know God in a way far beyond any other previous revelation of himself, Isaiah's vision included. In the following verses, we see God's greatness and his goodness. His greatness and his goodness. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. He is the king, not just a king, but the king, the king of kings, above all thrones and dominions and power and rulers and authorities in this age and also in the age to come. This is the one who was born in the manger, the king of kings. His throne is lifted up as he rules heaven and earth. From his throne, he exercises judgment. He is not only the king, but he is the judge. And he is a just and righteous judge who always does what is fair, which is good. But it's also terrifying. He always gives what we are deserving of. This is why Isaiah is undone when he sees the Lord clearly as he is. Isaiah, the prophet, called by God to reach his people, is undone when he sees God clearly because he knows that if he is judged according to his deeds, he is doomed, as are we. He is the God of peace. He is peace. Do you see, he's sitting upon the throne. Uzziah dies and God is not pacing and biting his nails and wondering, what are we going to do from here? What do we do now? He is sitting. He is composed because he is always in control. Do you recognize that? Do you live your life in light of the fact that Jesus is always sitting upon the throne, is always in control no matter what sort of chaos or havoc is happening in your life? In Colossians 3.15, Paul says, Let the peace of Christ, to which you were called, rule in your hearts. God has called you to a life of peace because he's called you to a life of trust in the sovereign Lord who is in control and who is orchestrating all things and, and never loses his grasp on the present or the future. He is the exalted one. He is lifted up above all. 
There is a, a chorus that's echoed throughout Isaiah, especially in the first five chapters, that on the last day, he alone will be exalted. Every knee will bow before him. All of those who have exalted themselves will be brought low. All of those that we exalt will be humbled and brought down as they are truly, but their minds don't recognize it. And we will bow down to him. And he alone will be exalted in the last day. This is a warning to us. If you're like me, you struggle with pride. If you're like me, you struggle to not inflate the opinions of others. But God alone will be exalted on the last day, so why don't we treat him as the exalted one alone today? Is God placed upon such an exalted throne in your life? Do you see him as this king that is set above all others, who has authority and dominion over every area of your life, or are you even struggling just to put him on the throne of your heart? He sits upon the throne of heaven, but he does not sit upon the throne of your heart? How could it be so? He is transcendent. He is other. Puny Isaiah looks up at this exalted Lord upon this throne, and there is utter distance between them. There is a chasm between them that can, cannot be bridged. And the same exists in every single one of our lives if we do not have Jesus. John Piper was preaching on this sermon. He talked about the Lord's immensity. His church is near Minneapolis, so the way he described it was imagine looking upon the, the city of Minneapolis and seeing this massive throne high and lifted up in the train of the robe of the king fills, floods over the entire city. The temple that Isaiah is seeing the Lord in, in this vision, is not the earthly temple in Jerusalem. This is in the throne room of heaven, the very holy of holies in heaven, which the earthly temple was designed after in a much, much smaller form. Imagine the Lord sitting upon a throne, the legs of it a Willis Tower each, with his his robe cascading over the whole city of Chicago. We struggle to believe that God is able to equip us, enable us, empower us to reach the city of Chicago. But that is who he is. That is the vision of God we need to have in our hearts. Because that is how immense he is. If we have a little God... People are going to be big. We are going to succumb to the fear of man forgetting the immensity of God. 
Verse 2, above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Now I want to focus on God, but we got to talk about the seraphim for a minute. Because this is the only passage in all of the scripture where the seraphim is mentioned. These are angelic beings. Many think there is either uh, similarity or even that they're called something different in Revelation 4, 8. The living creatures who have six wings and what do they do constantly? They bow before the throne of God and worship him saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come over and over and over again. And yet these creatures who are in the presence of God, created to be in the presence of God, cannot be in his presence without covering. They can't look at him directly so they have wings to cover their eyes. They can't place their feet upon the holy ground that he stands upon so they have, they have wings to cover their feet. And we have no hope of being in the presence of God in this world by means of the Holy Spirit residing in us or in heaven forevermore if we are not covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. This is the only covering that we'll do. We need to take note and learn from the way the seraphim behave act where their heart is in the presence of God because they are seeing him clearly. Verse 3 says, and one called to one another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. God is worthy of worship. He is the only one Worthy of worship and praise and honor and blessing and thanks and awe and wonder and reverence and fear. What would it be like to see God on his throne in the very temple in heaven? Surrounded by myriads, tens of thousands, millions of angels worshiping him day and night. How would you respond? I just want you to envision that. What does that look like? And what would it be like to see this? Would you join in? Or would the busyness of your schedule... The stress of your day prevent you and make you say, maybe next time, maybe another day, maybe next week when I'm feeling better. In the presence of God, this makes my heart tremble because I know that while I'm saved, while I am covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, my heart does not moment by moment do what the seraphim are doing moment by moment in the presence of God. I know that is not my heart, but it should be. 
And if I kept a, a clear vision of who God is in my mind, if I could, if I could just remain with him and, and not be so distracted and, and, and thinking of other things and, and worshiping other things, my heart would be there. If we're just worshiping the God, if, uh, uh, the God of our life four songs a week, 20 minutes on a Sunday service, what are we worshiping the rest of the week? God created our hearts to be worshiping hearts. So we're going to worship something. What is it for you if it's not him throughout the week? God is holy. He is utterly other and set apart. But what is he set apart from? Everything. Before God created anything, he was holy. He is outside of all of creation. It is entirely other. He is distinct from it all and from us all. He is utterly unique. He is morally pure and perfect. He is holy, holy, holy. Why do they say it three times? In the Hebrew language, the way to give emphasis and importance is through repetition. There is no other single word in all of the Hebrew Bible that is repeated three times over. This is the only place. There is no other character or attribute of God that is repeated three times. R.C. Sproul says he is not mercy, mercy, mercy. He is holy, holy, holy. But from this, his mercy in love and grace flows. Are you viewing his holiness rightly? Or are you viewing his holiness through the lens of your unholiness? Are you viewing his call to holiness? Be holy as I am holy. Are you viewing that call through the lens of the world? This is not some earthly king that calls us to be like him, but the scripture here says this is the Lord, Yahweh of hosts. The Lord Almighty, the Lord of angelic armies, hosts of armies, of angels. He is all-powerful. He is omnipotent. He is the ruler of the universe. Do you know this? Do you truly believe it? Does your life demonstrate that belief? If you trust him as the Lord of the universe and your life does not reflect a dependence upon him in all areas, maybe pride and unbelief, 
are more pervasive in our lives, mine included, in our lives than we would like to admit. Pride is all-consuming, and so we depend upon ourselves rather than him. We are prone to wander and to disbelieve in spite of all that he's shown us, in spite of all that we know and affirm to be true in the Scripture. If we believe he is the Lord Almighty, the ruler of this universe, then let us trust him with our finances, with the direction that he is leading us with our future, in our careers, with our income or lack of, through the economy that we're in right now with our relationships, with the the lives of our children and our parents, with our reputations, with our success, with our work and the meetings that we're in, the exams that our students are, are taking, with our time, with the type of entertainment that we consume, with the evangelism we're called to. Let us trust him for who he is. He is the glorious one. The whole earth is filled with his glory. The three main ways in the scripture, both in the Old and New Testament, that God demonstrates, manifests his glory to us is through his character, through his power, and through the manifestation of light. We see God's glory, the manifestation of his power throughout all of the created universe. The billions of stars display his infinitude, his immensity. Where do these stars get the energy to continue on? Our iPhone doesn't last more than a day. On a battery it has. And yet these stars that are, that are exponentially larger than the sun in our solar system continue on day after day, shining forth the brilliant light that God has put within. God sustains every single one of this. He is powerful and we see his glory clearly. In verse 4, it says, the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. We could say much about this passage, but I won't, <laughs> about this verse. But, but the, the shaking, the loud sound, the filling with smoke is characteristic of many of the physical manifestations of the Lord's presence in the Old Testament at Sinai, in the temple, and in many other places. But I want to get on to the last few verses. So let's turn our attention to point two, which is let me grasp my need. Let me grasp my need. In order to do this, I have to see myself clearly. 
If we ever wish to see ourselves clearly and understand the depth, the desperation of our need, we have to first see him clearly for all that he is. Look at Isaiah's response to all of this that we've just seen. It says, woe is me, for I am lost, or the word can mean doomed. I am undone. He sees that he has no hope if he receives the just judgment of the king. I have no chance. When he says, woe is me, this speaks of great sorrow and distress, inconsolable grief that his heart feels because of this calamity that is coming. Because he is a man of unclean lips. What does this mean? The lips are the revealer of our heart. It's not just that Isaiah's words are impure. His heart is impure. And every word that comes from his mouth is tainted by this. So how can a man with an unclean heart who has impure words coming out of his mouth worship the holy king of the universe in the way that he is deserving of? We can't. This is why we need to worship the Lord, not just in truth, but in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. There's a reason that is his name. He's not just any spirit. He is the spirit of holiness, God's very holiness in presence. If you are a believer, is in you through the spirit. But do we understand his holiness? Are we undone by it? R.C. Sproul says it in this way. He says it's the trauma of holiness. We know what trauma means in our world. You get into a car accident, and this is going to have implications for every time you get into your car, if it's severe. You're going to see things differently. It's going to change you. It's going to impact you for a lifetime. Have you had that sort of encounter with the Lord who is holy? Have you been undone by his holiness? Or is his presence in your mind commonplace, familiar? He sees himself clearly and recognizes that he is doomed. But with this, he says not just that I am a man of unclean lips, but I live among a people of unclean lips. Notice how they're both there. Isaiah was a prophet. He was probably in the top 10% of his class, at least, maybe the valedictorian in Israel. And yet he doesn't say, I live among a people who are wicked and evil, and they're corrupting me. He says, I am a man of unclean lips, and we are all the same. So are they. We are all utterly doomed and destined for God's judgment and destruction. 
rightfully so. We and everyone else who has ever existed in this world have the same desperate need for the Lord, for forgiveness, for atonement, which is exactly what we see is provided in verses 6 through 7. If the story of the scripture ended was encapsulated in Isaiah's vision and ended at verse 5, there would be no hope. If God was only holy, only just, we would be all utterly doomed. But the story of salvation does not end there because God's character does not end there. In verse 6 and 7, it says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. prayer here is let me know your grace. I want to grasp the gravity of your glorious grace. We see in this this passage pardon that comes from heaven, forgiveness that is offered from the very throne room of God, guilt that is removed. Now, this isn't just us saying, I feel guilty because I did something. This is standing in a courtroom and the judge saying, you are guilty. That has been removed. The verdict of guilt has been removed, erased, dismantled, and has been replaced with the verdict of innocence, blamelessness, perfection, holiness, not because it is yours, but because it's been given to you by Jesus and is his. Atonement has been made. The wrath of God has been averted and satisfied. Each of us is deserving of incurring the wrath of God for our sins throughout all the rest of eternity. And Jesus took that upon his body so that we did not have to. Our sin has been covered in his perfect holiness And the punishment that we were deserving of has been paid for in fullness. But this must be viewed in light of his holiness. We cannot appreciate the glory, the depths of his grace if we do not appreciate the extent of his holiness. Here we see the grace, the mercy, the love of God, his forgiveness and compassion, his patience with Isaiah and with us, that he is slow to anger, that he is faithful to his promises. The details of this vision may be confusing. 
What are the tongs and the coal? What altar was it? How are his lips cleansed? But what we know is these things only come as a result of what Jesus has done for us and the blood that he shed. So our last point is let me answer your call. Let me answer your call. If we see God clearly and see ourselves for the desperate sinners that we are, and we understand our utter need for salvation and his incredible gift of salvation and grace, and he says, go and take this which you have received and go into the world, shouldn't we be compelled to do so? Not just because he told us to, but because we want others to have it as well. Who are your loved ones, your friends who need to experience the grace of God because without them, they are doomed as Isaiah recognized he was? God calls out to us. Notice that Isaiah does not hear the voice of the Lord until after his sins are atoned for, his guilt is removed. God moves near to him in intimacy and speaks to him. He says, who will go? Isaiah responds to this commission and goes out to the people of Israel. As we read on in the book of Isaiah, we see that his mission was utterly unsuccessful by human eyes. With the vision he had, every person didn't jump and rejoice hearing of the grace that is offered, but they continued to rebel against God and reject him and set their eyes upon and serve and worship other things instead of him. But Isaiah had the strength to persist because he had a clear vision of God that permeated his very being. Are you struggling with the commission to go? Could it be rather than just a fear of man, a worship disorder? And could that worship disorder be as a result of not clearly seeing God for who he truly is? As we end our service this morning, I'm going to call Sarah out. And we've got one last song that the worship team is going to bring to you. In this time, I want to call you to something that for you may be uncomfortable. I want to call you to get out of your seats and come forward.